Hi everyone, my name's Liam and welcome back to another episode of CineRealm. Today I'm joined by my good friend Stuart. Stuart, how are you doing? I'm doing brilliant, thanks. How are you? I'm doing pretty good too. So, I've invited you on the podcast today to talk about something that's particularly close to our hearts. And it's our shared affinity for music and especially film music. Not just yeah. film scores, but soundtracks and songs that are yeah. either original for the films or have been lended to the films and have been written beforehand because writing is an integral part to any film as alongside yeah. directing and so is acting, sta- stage editing, films, sound editing, etc. But it's the music as well and the ambience that the music creates which is also integral in its own right. And we've each picked we've each picked one of our favorite soundtracks. It would be, I think, because there are so many fantastic movie soundtracks out there. It's very hard to pinpoint just one that we both love. But we've we picked two of our favorites, and we're going to spend some time in today's episode discussing them. So we're going to be starting off with. Um, the MCU film Guardians of the Galaxy and it's the awesome mix volume one awesome mix from the first Guardians film so you Stuart podcast on uh, you can, I'm sorry for interrupting but you can't do a soundtrack podcast and not include Guardians one awesome mix volume oh, one no. or two. no you can't it's just something you don't do it's iconic James Gunn has done a very good job with um well, scene selection and putting music to each scene to drag all of the emotion out of it. Well, put emotion into it and get emotion out of it. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think it's amazing. I think it's really good. I was um, It was a fantastic film and it was also a fantastic soundtrack because no film in, in my mind is complete with without a compelling score or a soundtrack. If you can have both, great. But obviously, if you've got one of those elements there, that's something major. And it's something to characterize the plot and give the film some sort of st- substance. And I think I think that was done really well through Guardians of the Galaxy because of course there's such what I loved about Guardians is that it took me completely by surprise we'd had yeah. the we'd had the well-known stories of Iron Man Thor and Hulk and Cap and the Avengers that had come before and now we're into phase two and Guardians of the Galaxy almost felt like the black sheep it was it was set in an entirely different world an entirely different set of characters that had seemingly yeah. seemingly no link to everyone that had come before. Of course, they would later be tied into the franchise with Infinity War, but yeah. up to this point, they were sort of their own standalone thing, it seems. So, but it was... But I think James Gunn, I think, especially needed something to help the film not feel too outlandish to the viewers. Yeah. And I think in the soundtrack that he culminated for this, he did a fantastic job in doing that. Yeah. And as well with the with the connection to Infinity War, um, overlooking it, it would be uh, understandable to think that Guardians of the Galaxy is just some connective tissue to bring all the MCU into Infinity War. Mm-hmm. But I think it's on its own. It's a very very good movie, and you actually care about a lot of the characters. One of my favorite characters in the whole of the Marvel franchise is Rocket Raccoon. Like you just can't fault him. I love him to bits. Um, <laughs> Star Lord Chris Pratt, as much as he is a dick in um, Endgame and Infinity War, 
Uh, again, I love it a bit. So it's it's just really really well put together. It was it was what I especially liked about about this soundtrack is it was it was such a range of emotion and there was this very yeah. stark balance throughout throughout the film and and following the very emotional start to the film where Peter watches his mother die and then he's taken off by extraterrestrial life and and the next time we see him is probably probably one of the most underrated parts of the film but one of my favorite parts of the film and it's it's the whole sequence with come and get your love by redbone Mm. where he's walking through the cave system recovering the orb what we now know as the power stone but it's there's all these uh, rats and these little creatures and he's kicking them and he's picking them up and singing microphone yeah. And it's 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 some fantastic full grounding from James Gunn because immediately we know yeah, we know not to take Chris Pratt's character so seriously. Mm, it's the it's the comedic relief the MCU needed exactly at that point in time. Yeah, because I think I think Avengers and obviously Iron Man three that had come before had had sort of humorous screenplays, but this was. Especially from James Gunn, this was a real deep dive into um, adding a lot more comedic elements into the MCU. And you sort of had a a soundtrack that was earing on humorous and comedic at the same time. And it's this, where we know not to take him seriously, it's it's this first entry into the MCU where we are sort of faced with a character who isn't a straightforward, simple hero, because at the start, he's sort of shown to be a thief, sort of a bit of an, an anti-hero, a vigilante kind yeah. of character. Yeah, definitely. And the mask he's the mask he's wearing, that's the mystery of sort of, well, who is this guy? Is he an alien? Where <laughs> exactly. Are we? What's going on? And then he takes the mask off and come and get your love starts playing. It's like, what? What's going on? Why is why is this comedic brilliance in my MCU movie? It's it it was to be honest, it was it was masterfully done, and obviously it went on to become a huge critical critical and commercial success. Took over yeah. seven hundred twenty two um, hundred million at the um, seven hundred twenty two million dollars worldwide. Highest grossing superhero film of 2014. There's a lot of accolades there. It's praise for screenplay and direction, the acting, all all the things that you should get praise for in a film. But it was the soundtrack as well. And this soundtrack that was this really sort of niche, quirky element. Because um, if I can draw a comparison here to um, Tarantino's work. Specifically, Tarantino's work, and I will I will go on to talk about these soundtracks in a future episode because there's so much depth you can go into. But if I take Jackie Brown or Pulp Fiction or Reservoir Dogs, all of these soundtracks are placed in films with very serious, macabre topics of violence, of drug use, etc., of abuse, and and it's 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 the it's the parallels of you've got this very dark storyline, but then a very sort of light-hearted, humorous soundtrack, and it's like that with Guardians that it it should feel out of place, but it's that contrast yeah. that works really well. Yeah, I agree with you on the contrast remark. It's sort of like 
it's hard to explain it. It's like I know reward experience for a sad sort of topic, a sad dark topic. It's sort of, and in a way, I think that helps bring about understanding and emotion that goes into it. Mm-hmm. Um, if it was, uh, of course, with some scenes you have to have a depressing undertone. With the hospital scene at the beginning mm-hmm. of Guardians One, you have "I'm not in love" and this sort of. That, I think that's the perfect choice for that scene because you have young Peter sat there listening to his music, mm-hmm. sort of just being like, I, I, "I'm a, I'm a grown ass man. Uh, I, I don't feel emotion. I'm not in love. I'm not upset." Um, I, I think it's really well placed. But then you, the next um, musical scene, you have "Come and Get Your Love," and he's dancing around a scary, damp cave, kicking rats and. Yeah, the contrast there is uh, unbelievable. Not to talk about the rest of the movie, that's just the small incidents at the start of the movie where it's evident. Mm. I think it's brilliant. It was, it was, and it's alongside the brilliant score that was composed by Tyler Bates, and the score and the soundtrack are just both complementing each other so well. And as you said there, regarding that opening scene where he's listening to his um, mixtape on his cassette that he then he then takes this cassette with him and we and we see him as an adult before he, he plays Redbone with this cassette again and it's this for me it was this motif that lasted throughout the first film and predominantly the second film yeah. this motif of that he always he always has his mother with him and with this music it was sort of music that he enjoyed with her and he shared with her yeah. and in a symbolic way he sort of still savouring these moments by holding on to this mixtape. It was a human element to an alien movie. Exactly, definitely. But because obviously he was a he was a half human character and it was this it was this ma- brilliant mashup uh, um being brought now over the soundtrack of sixties and seventies grooves of deep of deep nostalgic roots and of the the cultural the, the cultural reference points and mm. It was. It was just the, the the music from these eras was was very was very obviously prominent, very popular, and it's a nice callback as well to people from those age groups who who are perhaps fans of the Marvel films, and they hear yeah. these songs and they're like songs from their childhood, and it's that familiarity yeah. that comes back to them. Yeah, exactly. Like in say. Maybe forty years, we're all uh, we're all watching movies, and then I don't know. I'm not particularly a fan of Stormzy or whatever, but you find like a movie, and then Stormzy's playing, and it's like, oh, that reminds me of 2019, 2020. Like that'd be the same thing as what's happening right now with these movies and the older generations sort of hearing the music from this new, colourful movie experience and being like, oh wow, yeah throwback much because i i definitely think whether whether it's an original song written as part of a soundtrack mm. or a song that's being lent to a soundtrack our our memories of music obviously a taste uh um altered by our experiences with those songs and in those sort of scenarios but they are also shaped by the me- the films that we associate them to yeah definitely because I I associate 
House of the Rising Sun by the Animals, which is one of my favourite songs of all time with the ending to Casino. That's just that's just another example. Every time every time I think of that song, I think about the end of that film. Same with same with Layla in Goodfellas. It's yeah. it's these these moments that and it's this ability that these directors and these movie creators have to not only create brilliant, well-constructed soundtracks that lend themselves so well to the era where the film is set in, but it's also yeah. it's also talking about talking about these songs that give people long-lasting memories, and also for the older audience, bring up many nostalgic ones too. Is there... Go on, go on. I think with, um, as you said, with the other films like Layla with Goodfellas and associating a song with a movie, I think in many years to come, if I hear any of these songs, it'll bring me back to the first time I saw this movie and Guardians 2 and especially ones on Into the Wild as well. I mean, it's a bit different. Those songs were written for that movie, mm-hmm. but they're good songs on their own anyway. And I think if I were to hear them, I'd think, oh, yeah, I remember that time of my life. I remember sort of, well, it'll definitely remind me of lockdown because that's when I watched the movie, this whole COVID-19 experience. I think that'll be a good um, landmark for associating music in a movie with. Because there, there are, I mean, across across decades and across decades and decades of fantastic yeah. films from legendary filmmakers. You've you've got an, a plethora of different soundtracks of different film scores that we remember all of these different movies and all of these different composers and directors for. And like, but like you said at the start of at the start of this podcast, we can't. We can't have a conversation. We can't have a conversation about soundtracks without mentioning the awesome mix, without question. Yeah. No. I, I know it's a relatively new soundtrack, but it's brilliant nonetheless. Oh, 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 for sure. For, and it's and it's not even it's not even an original soundtrack. These are these are songs no. that have already been made. That that have been yeah. just added to the soundtrack, but they are used in such a clever way and in such an such an original way. And as I said, this was this was a big step for the for for the children, especially who would who would be new to the MCU and new to Marvel, who had who had seen the sort of seemingly realistic, I suppose, characters of Iron Man, Thor, and Guardians of the uh, uh, yeah. and Captain America. And now we're going really outlandish with Guardians of the Galaxy. But this yeah. soundtrack, a very sort of relatable, at times a beat, at times more poignant music, was a reminder of not just Peter's connection to Earth, that Gunn also wants to keep the audience grounded, that James Gunn also wants to keep the audience focused that this this film isn't too outlandish don't worry we're not we're not taking you out of your home comforts there are still some things here for you and i think he did a he did a tremendous job in conveying that like if if you were to watch the movie without music and put a soundtrack to it it would be terrible of some electro synth pop just something completely you know alienish exactly yeah ufo ufo music 
and there is there is some elements of that kind of use of synth and pop and everything that makes something sound futuristic for example david bowie's moon age daydream that was an example when they get to nowhere they're just going through space david bowie's playing mm-hmm. at the same time it's nostalgic because it's david bowie but it's synth it's electro it's everything futuristic you'd want in a futuristic movie so the mix of nostalgic and futuristic is very very good oh for sure for sure and for such a good soundtrack it it certainly wasn't without the monumental amount of accolades that this film achieved it 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 went certified gold eight weeks after release it it certified platinum in january 2015 the following year after release and it was the second best-selling soundtrack album in the u.s in september 2014 and that was only that was only second to frozen which to be fair you you can especially see that it was the num- number one in the billboard top 200 for august 2014 and i definitely think it was it, th- these accolades helped in a lot of respects because thanks to the 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 well-crafted casts and the films that have come before in the mcu but i felt like the inclusion of this soundtrack and relating the guardians film to fans maybe not of the mcu but of fans of music and linking those fans into this film they garnered sort of this whole new fan base and found a way to put the mcu even more on the map yeah i i agree with that because it in um iron man you of course had iron man black sabbath sort of absolutely awesome way of bringing rock fans into Mm -hmm. into the mcu but then you have a mix of everything rock pop synth that that could bring a lot more people into into this marvel cinematic universe i think if I were to recommend this movie to a friend, I'd recommend it on the hopes that they'd sort of take the music away with it. Mm-hmm. And I'd recommend it on the basis of music and their musical tastes. You can recommend a movie to anyone. Say, oh, watch this, watch this, watch this. And they can watch it and be like, yeah, all right. But I, I've recommended people... Uh, to watch this movie on the basis that the soundtrack is well it is what it is it's awesome and it fits the movie <laughs> pun not intended very... yeah exactly it, it 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 was just and it and it um in 2014 it sold over two and a half million copies worldwide and and it, it also actually sold 11,000 in, in cassette sales, which I thought was really quirky because we saw Peter Quill using the cassette with the Walkman and everything. And this was a first for any sort of Disney-related soundtrack since 2003. And perhaps um, both of these accolades aren't necessarily that impressive in the, in the grand scheme of other soundtracks and, and other albums that have come before from artists, but... I think it is still massively impressive since that the ailing um, state of the music industry in terms of physical copies of things 
especially now we've seen the popularity of things like Spotify and, and Apple Music, etc. And I th- we're heading into the 2010s and through into the 2020s now, we're starting to see streaming become far more popular and physical copies of things, were, I think in time, are obviously going to be more hard to come by. So I think leading on from what we were talking about before in Guardians as a very as a very nostalgic as a very nostalgic film i think it was a nice little callback to that time when we had the cassettes and the CDs were were all the rave and stuff i i think i think it was it was really nice and i'm and i'm pleased that it it had that success even though as i said the the era of physical copies are starting to move behind us yeah, it's now the age of Spotify, isn't it? No, it's... I, it's... I've, I, I've recently begun collecting LPs and everything, going the old-fashioned way. It's just more authentic and... It it, it is more authentic, it, and it gives it a nice. It gives it. It gives the music you're listening to an extra layer of appreciation because yeah. I always I always think when I when I have an LP or I have a I have a CD of of a soundtrack or an album that I love. I think these are songs that I love, and I can physically hold them in my hand. Mm. Don't get me don't get me wrong. I have Apple Music myself, and I I love it to bits. Oh, no, and I Spotify, yeah. And and I and I and the streaming sites that we use are fantastic. They're very well made. There's a plethora of different genres on there, and also there's the links to podcast channels as well. There's an awful lot of content to listen to, and there's 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 too much for a single lifetime on Apple Music and Spotify. But it's sometimes nice to just take a step back and go go back into this world of what is becoming more and more of a distant past now where cassettes were the rave and CDs were the rave. But it, it's still nice, as you've said, that we can hold up on those hobbies like collecting LPs and appreciating LPs too. Yeah, and as well as just appreciating the hard copies of music, it's a way of appreciating the artists you love. It's a way of supporting the music you love so much. Oh, because exactly. Spotify is... It's ama- as, as as amazing as it is, it doesn't give the artists the same sort of appreciation and continuity that buying their LPs do. I watched a video with Matt Heafy from Tri- uh, Trivium, mm-hmm. and he was say he was saying during this uh, pandemic, during lockdown, because there's no live musical ticket sales, the one best way you can support your favorite artists is to buy the LPs, is to buy the merch. Mm. And as well as giving you a hard copy of it, it gives you memories, authenticity. In a few years, they'll be able to sell for God knows how much. But not that you'd sell them, it just give more value to the item in hand. Oh, for sure, for sure, and and I and on the topic of LPs, I I don't think it it would probably surprise you if I told you that the Awesome Mix Volume One was the third best selling LP of the decade of the of the twenty tens. That would not surprise me at all, no. Because because you've got this plethora of music that was recorded from the sixty seven to seventy nine, and you've got these these callbacks to obviously fans of that music from from those eras who love the, those kinds of songs growing up. You've got the new fans as well who are learning about these other kinds of music and listening to them in the formats of LPs and soundtracks, especially 
is a way for is a way for you know to to to, re- to connect um different generations of families for example a child might go and watch guardians of the galaxy with his grandfather or grandmother and they might and they might talk about the um they might talk about some of the songs from the film and how they loved them the, the child might buy their lp and they might take it up to the grandparents record record player That's and they might listen yeah. to it together and and i think the soundtrack probably for a lot of people has created a lot of these important memories yeah it's, it's made a bridge between generation to generation oh for sure i think i think that's that's awesome and classic music never dies and this is one way of reinforcing that thought if the music's good all generations will love it and that's mm. what this this soundtrack has done i'm oh, what generation of me and you with gen z Ooh, I, I i think so it, it's all to be honest i get really confused i get really yeah. confused but it's a way of making a bridge from the older generations, the in quotation mark boomers, and Gen Z is by making music that everyone loves. And well, it hasn't necessarily made any new music for the movie, but it's brought together classic music from, I say back in the day, but older generations and pushed it straight into the front line of music in new generations and i love that i absolutely love that a bit oh ex- oh, ex- oh exactly it's it's all about connecting connecting these generations and forming these bridges that can that can pass this music onwards and i i yeah. think i think the awesome mix did a fantastic job in reminding us of a lot of these fantastic songs from the past that we may have forgotten and it's bringing them back into the present and it's reminding us that this music shouldn't be dead and it's still very much alive in its own right Mm. and as well if you like this small sample of music as big as it has been successfully it's a very small sample of songs oh exactly from that generation oh it's a huge generation you can bridge out into other music from that generation i absolutely adore blues music so your stevie ray vaughan your bb king Mm -hmm. that was all around when this music was being written and it was awesome mix volume one that helped me bridge my love for rock with my love for blues and more old-fashioned music with other um guardians appearances with mcu movies in infinity war they entered the their scene was uh dubbed with the rubber band man oh it's a brilliant song I can't remember who wrote it, and I'm it's kicking myself for this because I listen to it a lot. But I can't remember it. Also... Oh god! <laughs> that's also the bluesy type of music I love, mm-hmm. and it's it's just amazing to see old, great old-fashioned music getting the recognition it deserves by the new, the new generation because it's the old music that paved the way for the new generation music. It's the old music that inspired the new music. The new music wouldn't be here without the old music and the use of David Bowie and the synth and everything else that has been featured on this, on this EP, on this album, on this Mm -hmm. uh, soundtrack. That has 
given new artists of today, I don't know, your grime artists, your pop artists. Well, let's, to, let's take the weekend Blinding Lights. Yeah. That's a, that's, a, that's a huge example from 2020. Yeah, it's given new artists a great way to express themselves because they've seen how others have done it and successfully done it. And now they can do it for themselves on the foundations that these great artists have made. You, you, you've hit. To be honest, you've hit the nail on the head with everything that you said there, and I, and I completely agree that you've got what, what's great, especially about the, about the awesome mix and about the music industry in general, is that you've got all these artists who see these nice little motifs in songs and think, hmm. That's quite inspiring. How can I use this in my own music in a different manner? And they build and build upon these motifs and they look further and further back into history. And then the awesome mix comes along and it takes this great mashup of songs from the 60s and 70s. And as you said, is a very, very minute taster of the caliber of songs that came out of that genre. And it's it's just the reminder of, of... how good those songs were were in as as good as all music is and a lot is for a lot of artists thinking hmm okay okay this stuff is is obviously was around significantly before before i was born in fact you know maybe even before my parents were born and and it's but it's it's still some really great content that i can use in my own music and and like you said as well it's it's about creating it's about creating those bridges, and you, as you said, this song, this this soundtrack created a bridge for many songs that you love in your own music tastes. Mm. Yeah, I, I fully agree with that. I love, I, I've said this countless times, but I love that old music is getting the recognition that it deserves from new generations. It's mm-hmm. just, it's brilliant. It's this new perspective on, isn't it? It's this new, pre- and that's yeah. what I. That's why, especially as I know, I I know I'm not going in circles. It's it's with the awesome mix. It's those shared generations having this shared affinity for these music, so these music genres that we love. But if there were two songs that we could take away, you and I, that we could take away as particular highlights from the soundtrack, and to, to be fair, it is extremely hard. One of those songs would definitely have to be "Hocked on a Feeling" by Blue Swede. What are your uh, What are a couple What are a couple of things that you can say about this song, Stuart? It's just a powerhouse of a song. It's It's something that if you played it, no one would be like, "Ah, oh, turn that off." No, no one would say it. If someone did say it, I don't think I'd be able to get along with that person. <laughs> and I remember I did. I, I was given DJ duty in one of my uh, oh, uni songs. Oh. It, was, it, was, it wasn't like a flat Please tell me you did. I played a hell of a lot of Guardians tracks, um, mainly because the music is good and it's music everyone loves. And they didn't realise that I was playing Guardians tracks <gasps> until I no. played Hooked on a Feeling. So I played Hooked on a Feeling. And they said, are you just playing the music from Guardians? I was like, no. <laughs> but yeah, they, they found me out. It's like, what do you mean? It's just good music. <laughs> but that's, that's right, though, because the, Hooked on a Feeling, it's the first song on the album, and it's, it's, it's a staple for the film, isn't it? 
It's the one yeah, song, if anyone had to pinpoint a specific song from the album or from the film, they would say yeah. Hooked on a Feeling. Yeah. Or the Pina Colada song. Although that's uh, everywhere. Everyone knows that. Ah, but, true. Yeah. But um, I, I liked when... When this was used in the film, it was it was shortly after they got a they they got caught and were sent to the, the supermax prison and the prison guard yeah. was you could hear this hookah shaka and he's like no no stop that 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 doesn't belong to you that song belongs to me and it's um yeah. it's this um and it, and he starts getting tased and you start hearing the ba ba da ba and it's just it's just so yeah. cheesy but it's. It's really capturing the essence of the film again. It's just this this very fun, light-hearted sequence, and you're taking all the darkness out of what yeah. could be a really serious scene. Yeah, definitely. And as well, you've got to realise, this is music from Earth, or as they say, terror in um, Guardians of the Galaxy. <laughs> and no alien's going to have heard of uh, Blue Swede or... Marvin Gaye or David Bowie or anyone, so they just listen to it, being being like, "What? What's this? What's this music?" So for Peter Quill to say, "That's my music," is very apt for the situation he's in. It's like this other world being is listening to my music, the music that my mum gave me. It's mine. It's my tape. Those are my headphones. And yeah, I, I think I think that piece of choreography and directing was very very fitting for the scene it was played i uh, it was it was fantastic and i loved as you mentioned that specific segment of dialogue where he said this song belongs to me yeah. and i think again that is just a reminder of how important this soundtrack is to him because as i mentioned it's it's a reminder of his mother and it's the memory not yeah. just of earth but of that obviously his biggest home comfort which was his mother. Yeah. And he was he was abducted by Yondu as soon as his mother had passed. So him even being in space has to be a reminder of Earth in a way. And that music is his only connection to a place that he's now far, far away from. And... And and it's it's he's trying to he's trying to maintain and stretch out that connection for as long as he yeah, possibly definitely. can because he because he treasures it so much and and I and I think especially with the inclusion of um not just this song but of the song and the light hearted tone of the song in this scene. Even when you see them getting locked up and you see them sort of walking past one another and getting taken to the jail cells and everything we we yeah. we still have this reminder that hang on a minute we're we're not that far into the film and some way or another we know these characters are gonna get out of this mess and it's that element of hope as well that this song gives us. Yeah, it's oh what's the word oxymoron? Ox oxymoronic, a... yeah, oxymoronic. Yeah, it's it's a diamond in the rough. It's happiness in a prison. It's, it it shouldn't be there, but it is. And it, you're right, it does give that element of hope. It's it was it was just to be honest, a, a surreal point in the a surreal point in the film, like with like with Redbone of 
of course, and it was just a reminder of that. Even though these characters are in this situation, and even though Peter Quill is getting the life tased out of him, we still we still can't take these characters seriously. They're just so fun and lovable, and the chemistry yeah. is just radiating between them. Yeah, definitely. And as well, the music helps the cringy intimate love scene part of this movie as well Mm, i find that it makes the scenes between gamora and um peter quill i say less unbearable they're good scenes anyway but it's sort of like if they'd taken those scenes seriously it'd be like oh cringe you know you know um this is a bit intense but with the music and the music element of it, you're listening out for the music maybe more than you're watching out for the scene. It's mm. sort of like, it's very equally balanced. Because I, I, I swear, I'm, 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 head, I'm heading towards trying to put a Parks and Rec reference in every single, every single episode I recall, but yeah. I'm, I'm a big fan of Parks and Rec, and obviously that show is where Chris Pratt got his start, and he was playing this very lovable goofball character throughout Andy Dwyer, who's, who's not necessarily the sharpest knife in the set, but he's such a, lo- yeah. such a lovable, such a friendly character, and you, you, and I think you can see the, the, there's just no seriousness at all in Pratt's face he's when like, he's trying to he's do like these. A monkey with a banana. When, when when he's trying to do these love scenes, when he's trying to do these love scenes yeah. with Gamora, and I think James Gunn said, right, you know, Pratt's just making this as cringy as possible. Let's just let's just put some cheesy sort of song over the top and just let's just see what happens. Yeah, yeah like I say, he's like a monkey with a banana. He's <laughs> he's uh, he's really good at making scenes unbearably cringy and like interesting as well mm-hmm. it's not just a love scene it's chris pratt taking the piss out of aliens who've never heard of music before and yeah. he's using the music as his way to flit oh so yeah he's using other people's content as a way to well you know this is from my earth i made this this is this is me it's just yeah it's really good it's really really cool but Hooked on a Feeling is not the only song, if we if we had to pick some songs from the soundtrack that were very memorable to us. And the other oh, song the other song came right at the end of the film. And so for a bit of context, right at the start of the film, when we have this montage with I'm Not In Love played and we, we see the sadness in Peter Quill's eyes knowing that his mother is about to pass, she hands him this present. And we don't know what the present is, but we can... It's very... In my opinion, it was very heavily implied and it was extremely obvious what it was going to be. Um, yeah. And eventually, he he finally gets around to opening this present at the end of the film, and it's Awesome Mix Volume 2. And I'm the, glad we're talking about this, because there are a lot of plot points that need to be discussed. Yes, yes. Um... And he, and he puts on this song with "Ain't No Mountain High Enough," and all of a sudden this song starts playing. And I think for the end of the film, this was this was a perfect song because throughout this entire film, he's this he's a sort of this this human. So so we assume he's a human in a sort of state of flux where he's swaying from one life to the next, one person to the next. In terms of um, influential people in his life, namely Michael Rooker, 
Um, and he doesn't really know what he wants for himself. And one minute he finds himself as a thief. One minute he finds himself as a smuggler. And But eventually, at the end of the film, he he sort of puts aside his selfish morals and holds this sort of orb and tries to save his fr- tries to save his friends and he does in doing yeah. so and they they form this bond they eventually form this bond together and they become the guardians of the galaxy and and i think that i think that this song in conjunction with him finally opening the present was a lamentation of that he is finally ready to come to terms with the loss of his mother after all of this time and being in a state of flux didn't really help him and now he's found now he's found his feet with something that he can love now he's found a family of his own after having lost his own family he's found something that his mother can be really proud of and Ain't No Mountain High Enough, which is such a very positive mm. and an emotional, a motivational song, is a very good example of that important character development that we see in this film. Yeah, it's a very prospective placed song. So it's like, Ain't mm-hmm. No Mountain High Enough. I can do whatever I want. I've just held an infinity stone. I've killed one of Thanos's lackeys. I can do whatever I want. And listening to this song help, has helped me uh, get to terms with loss and everything uh, of the above is is a good way of tying it all together. One plot point, I, well, two plot points I want to discuss. Mm-hmm. Go for it. I find it amazing how before he puts the tape into the player, he reads a letter from his mum, and at the end, um, his mother has written down My Little Star-Lord or something to that effect. She uses the word Star-Lord. And his persona throughout the whole movie is him going from Peter Quill, mortal human, to Star-Lord. You can't kick my ass because I held an Infinity Stone. Mm -hmm. So I think it's it's a really good way bringing that extra tape in with Ain't No Mountain High Enough, um, I think it's a really good way to wrap up the whole movie. And oh, the next oh, for thing, sure. The next thing is, does Ain't No Mountain High Enough deserve to be on Awesome Mix 1 or Ooh, Awesome Mix I'm, 2? I'm glad you've... Because it's on Awesome Mix 2. Officially, it obviously should be on Awesome Mix 2, but... Yeah. It was but in terms of the movie. In terms of the movie, but not just in terms of the movie, in terms of the music that was used in the movie and yeah. and all of those songs in some way or another uh paying homage to this character development that all of the characters are privy to, especially mm. Peter Quill into his transition as as Star Lord as something greater. And yeah. you've gone from you've gone from I'm not in love at the start where he's at the height of his grief. And the shock is finally setting in that he's about to lose lose someone very special to him, and mm. he and then he and then you see him as this sort of light hearted Joker when he's older. This sort of like this weird mix, as he described, as sort of like a hand solo Marty McFly 
from Star Wars and Back to the Future, respectively, yeah. kind of character, and and he's now with a, an, an alien thief slash smuggler, and now at the end of the film, with Ain't No Mountain High Enough, the realization is finally setting in that as he's now opened this present, he's now ready to come to terms with every all the values that his mother wanted him to aspire to and as, as you said you're my little you're my little star lord that's what that's what she said in the in the letter and now and now he's got this platform and he's got these wonderful people around him to be a star lord to be the person yeah. that his mother always dreamed he would and now he and now he has this motivation in his head to go off and make her as proud as he possibly can and fulfill her legacy yeah, definitely. Because it's, it's just a go on. Oh, sorry. I was just about to say it's a it's a great song for any character development, really, because you can take you can fit that song to a vast number of things. Ain't no mountain high enough. He's just gotten over his grief. That's the mountain that's too high. Um, ain't, ain't no mountain high enough. Um. You could use as the song's literal um, meaning as sort of two people in love at a distance, um, maybe Peter Quill and Gamora, um, human, alien, falling in love, ain't no mountain high enough. He does a lot in that movie to save Gamora's life. And there's i know that's only two examples uh mm-hmm. i put myself on the spot a bit here no it's okay it, it's okay uh, you can fit it to a lot more um meaningful moments in well any film really it's a really good mm. universal tune to use oh oh of course because it's it's that it's that classic that classic sort of theme that I always love to see in a film of some sort of character development, whether that's a character improving for better or for worse, be it a protagonist or an antagonist. And yeah. in this case, it's something it's something special and it's something unique in itself. It's, it's the realisation that he doesn't have to continue in this state of flux, that he can find his feet and find something that he can really settle into now that he's yeah. found a group of people that he can love and it i think it gives him a responsibility it gives him a focus and especially at the start of the film when he steals the orb and he double crosses the ravagers and he tries to keep it to himself for as long as possible he's committing all these actions and there's this guilt that's within him that's just lingering over time that he's not sure what to do in himself do with it do with himself and i i especially think that in that scene, as we mentioned, with Hooked on a Feeling, where he sees sort of the scars on scars on Rocket's back and, and the, the bits of the shards of metal in him, and he sort of mm. turns away and, and he has that look and he is and he just wonders, in my opinion, is this is you know, is a life behind a jail cell the sort of life that I want for myself? And yeah. now at the end of the film, this is a culmination, as you said, of all those moments where he's done little bits of good. And now he's finally at a point where he's been where he's been cheered on by all the people around him and, and he's well respected by um the people of Xandar. He 
he now is in a place where he can think to himself, I've done some good, I've done some good in my time, and I can hold my head up high without any guilt because of that. And I can yeah. embrace this new person that I've become. And that's why I think Ain't No Mountain High Enough was such a perfect song to end on because it, it yeah. complemented this character development absolutely perfectly. Yeah. And it's, and it's put in good stead other movies as well. Like the future uh, Guardians movies, Ain't No Mountain High Enough could also mean I can tackle anything I could possibly tackle. I could, spoiler alert for Guardians, to beat my own dad in a battle even though he owns the universe. And it puts a happy, positive perspective feel mm -hmm. to future movies coming from it. Oh, exactly. Now we've spent some time talking about the Awesome Mix Volume 1, the critically acclaimed Awesome Mix Volume 1 from Guardians of the Galaxy. There is another soundtrack that we are going to mention, and it's a soundtrack that I actually only came across very recently, and it was recommended to me by Stuart. And it's the soundtrack for another critically acclaimed film from 2007 called Into the Wild. And it's a biographical drama film written, co-produced and directed by Sean Penn, adapted from a book written by John Krakow. Apologies if I pronounced that wrong. Telling the story of a man called Christopher McCandlist, who is also known as Alexander Supertramp in the film. And he's a man who decided one day after after leaving university, following many years of grief, many culminating years of grief, following the discovery that his that is that he was born out of wedlock and his father had been um, having having an affair with a woman, and that he was married to someone else at the time, and the pressure that that put on himself and his sister, not to mention the sort of hostilities in the environment that he had growing up. He just decides one day to donate the remainder of his college fund, which is 24000 which is what his parents wanted him to use to go on and further his education with. As he mentioned in the film, he decides to cut up his social security cards and any of his IDs and his credit cards, and he just starts wandering. He hikes all across North America, um, so at some point down into Mexico, um, but eventually his ultimate goal is to get into the Alaskan wilderness. And all of this, a majority of this took place in the early 1990s. And I'd heard of this film. Of course, I'd heard of Sean Penn, he's a brilliant actor. And I, I, had a lot of, I had a lot of hopes going into this film. And I have to say it was absolutely fantastic. I loved I loved it from start to finish and it was it was Stuart who recommended it to me. Emil Hirsch in the lead role was absolutely fantastic. Of course I've seen him before in Lone Survivor with Mark Wahlberg. Vince Vaughn and Catherine Keener as Wayne and J J Jan respectfully. They both had they both held brilliant supporting roles too. And the thing that Stuart is is probably rearing to go jumping up in his seat talking about is 
is, of course, this wonderful soundtrack that was written for the film, comp- um, yeah. written and composed by Eddie Vedder, who is the who is the lead singer of Pearl Jam. And I, Stuart is it? Stuart is quite a big Pearl Jam fan, and I've I've never really heard any. Least, yeah. <laughs> I've Say never I've never really <laughs> I've never really heard any of this stuff, but. He, he, when we decided we were going to come on the podcast and talk about this, I decided to go away and listen to the listen to the album, and it was a com- compilation of various original songs, very, very well suited to the film, and again, the soundtrack, it just absolutely blew me away. So, Stuart, I've sort of covered a bit of the synopsis there, and I can tell you're rearing to go. Man, you uh, fire yeah. away. You fire away. Let's talk let's talk a bit about the soundtrack in general first. So the soundtrack is a combination of different tunes that sort of allow the watcher of the movie the movie, the consumer, to understand the journey that Chris McCandless or Alexander Supertramp uh, embarks on. Um, the first song in the movie, it's in, well, modern day in context of the movie. So when he's just getting to Alaska, the song that plays is Guaranteed. It's a very good track, very catchy. So he's setting off into Alaska. He's just got out of the car and it starts playing and you see him walking across the uh, wilderness. And Well, there, there are two songs that have, that play during this period guaranteed is very good in terms of lyrics they're very relatable to the character and that's one of the benefits you get for having songs written specifically for a film one of the lyrics is i know the rules but the rules do not know me this is very characteristic of chris mccandless and the journey he embarks on he's as liam said he graduates from uni he he is able to get into harvard law he's a very smart kid but that's not the route he wants to go down because it's the route his abusive parents went down it's how his parents got to where they are to the point where they'd lie and do whatever they need to do that um leave scars in chris mccandless's childhood and so he doesn't want to follow that same route. He wants, rather than making relationships with mankind and other liars and horrible people, he wants to make his relationship with nature. And the lyric, I know the rules, but the rules do not know me, really shows that he doesn't want to go down the path of everyone else. He knows that it is what it is. He wants to make a relationship with nature and what's already been given to him by God. He's not He's not necessarily a religious character. He just thinks there's a higher higher thing uh, which has presented everything to the world that is, you know, God. It's God's made everything without believing in religion or uh, anything down that road. Song 2 from the it's not on the soundtrack but the second song that's played on the film is long nights one of my personal favorites Mm. you can't help but listen to this song and reflect no no i um 
I was I, I can't like, to be honest a couple of things that I found I I think to be honest this was I've got I've got a couple on the soundtrack which I absolutely adored but it was long nights and it's and it's those opening lyrics because it's his decision when he's driving off with his Datsun yeah. into the distance and he decides and he decides that he's going to leave his life behind for good and it's those opening lines of have no fear for when I'm alone, I'll be better off than when I was before. And he's he's it shows us immediately that that Christopher is pursuing this loneliness that may seem very very unusual to most, but it's it's this loneliness that he's demanding because he as we both talked about, he wants to be free. He wants to be free from yeah. All the pressure that his parents are putting on him academically, but also all the pressure and the stress of dealing with those situations growing up. And as his as his sister commented in her memoir, she she talks about how a lot of what happened when he was younger eventually led to him wanting to find his inner self in in um in the Alaskan wilderness. And yeah. this film generally is a fantastic culmination of personal self-discovery, but also loneliness and heartbreak, grief, betrayal. And it's it's all these elements working together that are worked brilliantly into Veda's soundtrack. And yeah. and I and I think as we as we mentioned at the start of this podcast that no film is obviously complete without a compelling score or soundtrack, and it's got to be something that characterizes the plot. And I think this is yeah. one of those, one of those actually very rare, perfect examples where the music works so well into the plot, and a lot of these, a lot of the rhythms are very heavily, heavily acoustic from Veda. I'm sure you can agree yeah. with that. And it's, it's very toned down. It's very scaled down, which, to me, is a motif representing the minimalist stance that McCandless has taken on his journey across America. It's very raw. It's very raw indeed. Like and it and it's a reflection of the sort of experiences that he had on this journey, these very raw experiences and how he was motivated to continue pursuing his dream of just being That's alone it, yeah. in the wilderness. Yeah. As we can, as you can tell by what we've already discussed, this is a big movie for character development and mm. going from oh, one massive to another. It's like from Peter Quill to Star Lord is to Chris McCandless is to Alexander Supertramp. Mm-hmm. They both want to pursue their own journeys and get away from you know the past, if you will. A few more uh, notable tracks on mm-hmm. uh, this soundtrack. Hard Sun is a very, very good one. Hard Sun he's, is fantastic. Mm-hmm. He's it's very fitting because he's driving in the desert. I think that's called pathetic fallacy when something. It's, it's a term used in poetry. It's like when what they're saying. Like the type of adjectives they're using describes well, personification of weather. Itself. Personification, yes, of, personification weather. of weather. Yeah. Um, so that's a very. I think, and I think the whole album itself does that because of the type of techniques he uses. Use uses slide guitar. He uses ukulele. He uses a lot of raw sort of Western musical 
techniques to make the soundtrack for this um, for this movie, and I think it fits very very well. Oh, Hard so Hardson is a Hardson yeah. is is a fantastic song because it's it's again it's, it's, as he's continuing his journey and as we're following the transition the development from McCandless into Supertramp and he is he's on the road at the minute and he's and he's walking from place to place and but he's always got this sun beside him and he he almost sees the sun as the only guardian the only protection in his life that he needs because it's also worth noting that not only does he decide to completely abandon his life and abandon all his identification and all of his all of his money he also abandons his family he he doesn't want to tell any of his family he makes no effort to tell them of what he's doing and i think that I think that that's really reflected in this song and that he, he sort of sees this hard sun in the distance. You know, when I once I built an ivory tower so I could worship from above and when I climbed down to be set free, she took me in again. It's this motif that the sun is always looking over, is always forgiving, is always forgiving, um, always forgiving McCandless. And from a candless the sun but on a larger scale as you mentioned with 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 the weather and the scenery in general it's really the only person as it were that he's looking to for approval of what he's doing yeah he's well as it is it's him with nature him and nature are the only things that he needs to concern himself with it's yeah it's really good placement of lyrics and well song title you know he's in a desert Hudson hello mm-hmm. um yeah it's just a good mix of a lot of things which describes really this soundtrack he does go on to meet some hippies mm-hmm. um which are in a similar situation to him and uh, his family situation the two hippies he meets up with Rainy and his wife I can't remember her name I watched this earlier I should be able to remember her name but I haven't anyways um, they uh, lost their son and by lost their son they mean he left to pursue his journey of self-identification so him hearing from parents that have been affected by um, this same situation of the son leaving because of the parents' actions, it sort of brings it around full circle, mm. um, which I think is very, very cool. And then there's obviously the link between his sister and the parents and the family at home thinking, oh, God, where is he? Mm, and then naturally. it's the interplay between these characters, Alexander Supertramp and these hippies. It's sort of like his guilty conscience, but he still goes on to pursue his journey of self-identification of him in nature. Because because I think, as as you said there, when when he meets the group of hippies that have been through been through what um what his parents are going through now he's almost to be fair because he doesn't seem to react to it and he doesn't seem to think oh shit i need to head home in this moment he does yeah. obviously as towards the end of the film um 
but in this moment he just sort of he just sort of sees how they are and how happy they are even though they've lost someone and his sort of attitude is very, is very selfish in this scene isn't it because he's sort of thinking yeah. they'll be all right they'll they'll get over it it'll it'll pass etc and he and he carries this sort of generalized attitude with him throughout the film and that's ultimately mm. his downfall as the film comes to a close yeah one of the best quotes from this movie, there are loads of them, but one of them I want to pick up for this uh, specific point where he's mm-hmm. with the hippies. There's a piano score in the background, which is kind of beautiful, where they're on the beach and everything. And then they go back to the camp, and um, he says something along the lines of, rather than giving me money, education, materialistic things, give me truth. Don't lie to me. Give me, give it to me how it is. Mm-hmm. And I think that's um, a great way to sort of end, I guess, that character interaction because he then leaves to do his own thing again from those hippies. And... Yeah, there's also a lot in that situation about deserving love um, because of the connection between the two characters he's involved with now and their uh, situation between each other. He's a very wise person, this Alexander Supertramp. He's he's a very wise person, and I think that's what that's what makes him so charismatic to the audience that he's that he's definitely wise. He's wise beyond his years, and these songs are narrating that story, and they're very sort of simplified and very toned down. Um, And and there's that prominent sort of, as um, Thom Jurek of all music referred to, is a collection of folksy, rootsy tunes, and where rock and roll is sort of making fleeting appearances. And I think, I think, as I mentioned, that's what it's, that's what it's sort yeah. of referencing here. It's it's very simplified and it's very stripped back, and it's it's yeah. it's the tones are bare. They're very harsh. In this, in the, obviously, it's it's very melodic. Veda's songs are very melodic, but it's it's obviously very stripped back and very acoustic. There's there's very little editing and very finesse that's been done around it, and it's yeah. reflecting the uncertainty really of of what um McCandless is doing and there are there are these little tensions that are set out here yeah moving on to the next notable mm-hmm. again one of my personal favorites there's a lot of personal favorites on this uh <laughs> it's, a, it's a brilliant soundtrack track, but yeah it's called rise and it's a ukulele oh, track it's fantastic and it's sort of encompasses him rising to shoot his demons away and move towards what he wants to be the there are two lyrics i think they come one after another burning black holes and dark memories and turning mistakes into gold so he's necessarily using dark memories and black holes in life to create an essence of heat for himself he's using it to live off get away from it he's using it to fuel himself 
mm-hmm. and turning mistakes into gold is obviously well like long nights it's you know turning the past into something that you're able to reflect on and use to fuel your agenda for the futures the, so, that's that, that's the thing and, and i think that's that's one of the the prevalent themes that's ran throughout the film and it's this song it's about him sort of making peace but it, but it's also there's there's another tinge of sadness here that i see in this yeah. song that it's it's not just him as you mentioned with the, the very prevalent motif of the black holes making those making those um steps to move beyond his past and realize that his past and his what his parents did doesn't have to define who he who he chooses to become but it's also him acknowledging that he's he started down a path and he's gone beyond the point of no return and it's in a in a very different way it's almost like he's sort of on the high at the beginning of long nights the high of these that he's just cut up all his credit cards and his IDs and he's given the fuck you to his parents and taken his taken the checks <laughs> taken the check to Oxfam etc and he's yeah. like yeah I'm gonna you know I'm just gonna become a a wandering hitchhiker how how cool will this be and I'll I'll just walk off to walk off to Alaska and and to quote George yeah. and then he live off the fat of the land but it's yeah but now we now I think the realization is starting to sink in that even though he's loving doing what he's doing. It's a lot. It's a lot different to what he anticipated, and yeah. he's he's coming to terms with the fact that as he goes further and further into this lifestyle, he's not only coming to terms with with what happened in his past that has influenced his decision, but he's starting to realize that ultimately he will never be able, really, as much as he may want to he will never be able to go back to this life. No, exactly. One thing, well, another thing I'd like to say is Mm -hmm. in his travel across America, he gets to a farm and like a corn, a corn farm where they farm corn and, well, that's what you do on a corn farm. And he's being met loads of new people and asked for their perspectives on what he wants to do in Alaska. And mm-hmm. yeah, just moving away and finding himself. He's like, I don't want watches. I don't want money. I don't want anything. And then there's, a, there's quite a nice scene, a quite a wholesome scene where he's there sat with his boss. He's like, so, so what's, what's your deal? He's just like, I just want to get away. And then they've both had, you know, um, some alcohol. They <laughs> They've entered a state of inebriation. Yeah. He's like, I just want to get away from society. Society, man, society. And it's just like, that's a, I think quite a big moment in the film in terms of what we've already discussed. And there's also a song called Society, which comes in later in the film, which I think is uh, very, very characteristic of this movie. Eddie Vedder has done a very, very good job in encompassing Chris McCandless's ideas and morals and aims um, in terms of going from a rich kid living with uh, stacked parents to wanting to live in Alaska in the wilderness, but with nothing but himself. 
I think he's done an amazing job. Mm. And it, and it it reminds me especially of the prevalent film star throughout um the golden age of Hollywood and it was James Dean who mm. um tragically lost his life too young but he, he died in a motorcycle accident and he was famous for the film Rebel Without a Cause which was about which was about obviously a man who rebelled against his parents and essentially was fighting against the hierarchy. And it came at a time with all this music from Elvis that was coming in and was prompting kids to follow suit and be rebellious too. And this was this was similar to that, but it was it was rebellion in a different way. He didn't he didn't necessarily just want to rebel from his parents or just society he wanted he wanted to rebel from himself he wanted he, to find a sense of truth within he, himself. he wanted to find a sense of truth and there are especially from from watching this and the more the more i think about it now it's there are a lot of philosophical undertones that are scattered throughout this film in this great big quest of self discovery that he finds himself on mm. It's just, you know, packed with. Well, it's so there are lots of, it's lots of different ways of ultimately saying the same thing. You know, leave everything in the past, become who I want to be now. And I, I'll be honest with you, I, I've taken I, I've taken Chris McCandless's advice. I've I've taken some of what he said and thought about it. Mm. And also come in hand in hand with the soundtrack, tracks like Long Nights and Society. And a lot of that has changed my perspective on how I view things, like day-to-day things. Mm-hmm. And with my own character development, I know that sounds sort of cringy. But no, no, it's, it's that, that's fair. It's, and it's, it's, it's interesting that you say that because... Indirectly, for McCandless, he can he can, he can obviously be seen as, as troublesome because a lot of his ideas, he these 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 good ideas, I suppose, he took to the nth degree. But yeah, there are there are some things that we can learn about being about being free spirited and just pursuing the persona the persona that you want to be and not letting anything or anyone stand in your way. Yeah. It- yeah, it's just it's just riddled with um, amazing pieces of it, it. It makes you think, doesn't it? Oh, it de- it definitely makes you think. Makes you think. So in the track "No Ceiling," um, this is played when he leaves the magic bus with he's accomplished all of his uh, uh, goals and with staying staying away from civilization for I think what was it three months 12 weeks um leaves the magic bus goes back to the river which he crossed at the beginning of the film to find that all the ice that has melted since the beginning has now flooded into that river and it's now impossible to cross Mm -hmm. he's like you know life has no ceiling all i can do is i've accomplished my task he gets to the river oh right well shit (laughs) yeah exactly so once he's left with all of this happiness and you know just angst to get back to civilization with this wisdom he's just found i think the chorus i think it's the chorus it's 
as sure as I'm breathing, sure as I'm sad, I'll keep this wisdom in my flesh. I'll he- I'll leave here believing more than I had, and there's a reason I'll be a reason I'll be back. So, a reason I'll be back. It's all like, yeah, I- I'd do this again, but he goes to the river, and then he's like, oh, I have to go back now. And yeah, it just it just plays on the story itself, really. It it's playing on the story, and it's. It's constantly bouncing off it. And when I was doing some note-taking, I read about how um, Veda said how star- it was startling how easy he found it to f- to get into yeah. s- inside of McAllister's subconscious and, and essentially bring out that inner personality in him, that free-spirited personality. And mm. he, sa- he said it took him days. It, it it took him three days where he gave where he gave um, director Sean Penn all this material that Penn could yeah. choose to incorporate into the film, and these ideas seem to flow really naturally to him. And I think, I think that's what makes that's what makes the soundtrack lend itself so well to the film too. That it's yeah. it's this soundtrack that's obviously from Veda's heart, close to Veda's oh, heart. It's it's not yeah. the it's not, you know, sometimes what Pearl Jam is, you know, where there's a lot more, there's a lot more rock elements there. It's a lot yeah. more stripped down, and it, and it feels like, in a lot of respects, it, it feels like sort of a creation that Vedder has sort of got total control of, and that's what it needs to be because he's writing a soundtrack that he has total control of for a film featuring a character based on a true story of a man who yeah. wanted total control of his life, and. There are these very free-spirited tones in the songs that are replicated in the free-spirited persona of McCandless. Yeah, definitely. I think with Eddie, Eddie Vedder was a brilliant choice for this as well, not just because of his musical talents, but he himself is an activist. So I think Sean Penn has done a, done a brilliant job of uh, selecting Eddie Vedder because mm. you can tell in a lot of Pearl Jam songs um he is an activist for many things he he's an activist to um abolish the gun laws in america he's he's um pro-choice he doesn't believe that um you know people should be exploited and everything that he believes that people should be given a way out essentially Mm -hmm. he's a a people's person Mm. in a way one of his um in Pearl Jam, one of his MTV Unplugged uh, um, music show. Well, it was the only music show of MTV. Yeah, 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 yeah. Pearl Jam. He, in the song Porch, he gets up on his stool, writes pro-choice down his arm, jumps off, makes a huge sort of... When you're watching him, it's, it's, it's a treat to watch. And he improvises his own lyrics as well to <sighs> treat each situation as it comes. I think he does it in a lot of his, his normal shows as well. So the band will just play and he'll just say what he's feeling. So it's, wow. if he gets into, well, when he did get into the zone of thinking how Chris McCandless thought, he's, mm. he's an unstoppable force when coming to music writing. He's very, very good. And that's the thing that was, was really replicated in this plot, that it was... The the two notable obviously that he that he chooses not to stay with um 
not to stay with the two hippies and he decides to move on but also that he decides to leave he decides to ultimately yeah. leave um the retired rid- widower ron franz who he formed a very close bond with and franz tearfully pleads that you know i can adopt you i can make you my grandson and yeah. and mccandler still wants to go to alaska and and I I think that it's as you mentioned that he's that he's sort of snowballing all these ideas that are coming into his head and and it's one thing after another and he's and he's doing it brilliantly and he's conveying it brilliantly and it's a reflection of McCandless that he's essentially snowballing his life he's not taking a step back and carefully thinking things through he's just yeah. consistently going from one thing to the next with the ultimate goal that he's going to make it to Alaska. Uh, a quote from that part of the movie when he's um, with uh, with Ron is the core of a man's spirit comes from new experiences and he couldn't have hit the nail on the head anymore with that quote mm-hmm. um, he was saying that you shouldn't stick to societal norms and just go down the beaten path do what you want, experience new things and of course there's, there's a lot to learn from this movie in the fact that he went to the extreme end of the spectrum with experiencing new things mm-hmm. and he ultimately passed away um, passed away trying but that's now given a huge platform for people to learn from uh, his, his well not mistakes, his journey and mm. I think one of the last quotes of the film that he writes in his pad is "Happiness is only real when it's shared." And that yes. Oh God, I when think... he, when I when I saw him writing that, when as as frail as he was, and as his face, you know, as white as virgin snow, and yeah. I, and you could and you could see that he was he was knocking on death's doors, and he he scro- he's, he's just scribbles that very shakily just before he essentially keels over into his sleeping bag and, and dies and he and he it's the final realization that in those dying moments that he just wants to be back with his family and he's and he's yeah. wondering what his life would have been like it's almost a t- it's almost tinged with even though he wrote that he was happy and he said, yeah. "I've lived a happy life and everything on the on the side of his van." He, he. I don't know if he was. I I don't know. I I think there's a lot you can read into that because he maybe perhaps on all these elements where he was where he was being positive, perhaps that was a front for much more of a broken man underneath, who yeah. instead of instead of perhaps confronting his problems in a healthy way. He he wanted to ultimately run away from them, and Absolutely. I think and I think in a lot of respects that became his downfall because, as 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 he as he headed more and more into into the Alaskan wilderness, he spent more and more months about about the um, time of four months. Um, life had become increasingly hard, as you said. He tried to hunt down a large moose, couldn't preserve the meat, and that. He couldn't. Re- he couldn't return from the wild because the stream that he had crossed, all of the snow caps have melted, and yeah, like, and he's I just stuck. Yeah. He saw throughout the whole movie, 
when he's in Alaska, when he first gets to Alaska, it's snowy, icy, everything you'd want in Alaska. And then throughout those months, the ice starts to melt. And then by the time he wants to come back, the ice is fully melted. And it's because the ice is melted that he can't get back. So the ice melting can sort of be used as his realisation that he kind of needs everything that's over that river for it to mean anything. Exactly. And, and it's that it's the it's the it's the snow snow melting is almost the the replication of that mirroring of that facade breaking as you said it was alaska was everything he hoped it would be you could see the look on his face when he got out the car that he finally realized he had found somewhere but the reality began to settle in that to be honest his life was better just out on the road just wandering from place to place now that he's found somewhere to stick down and stay in one particular place he's actually going to ultimately be worse off. Yeah. And you 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 make a couple of in, um couple of interesting points going back to what you said regarding regarding the use of Veda's soundtrack. And I think I think it's really interesting you mentioned about the relationship between Penn and Veda because and I didn't actually know this the Veda had contributed two songs to a 1995 film called Dead Man Walking. And a cover for the Beatles, You've Got to Hide Your Love Away, to the soundtrack for I Am Sam, which was in 2001. And both I Am Sam and Dead Man Walking starred Penn. And Sean Penn, as director, actually handpicked Vedder to provide the music for the film. As well, I think there's... um... There is more of a family connection towards... I watched an interview and there's more of a family connection towards Penn and Vedder because... Penn's daughter, every time Eddie Vedder came on the screen in Pearl Jam or whatever, she'd go up to the screen go up to the screen and celebrate. I think she was like, Eddie Vedder, Eddie Vedder, Eddie Vedder. So that, that was sort of like, oh, Penn's realisation, yeah, all right then, let's, let's have him on the movie. Yeah, let's, let's throw him onto the bill. Yeah. But it was, over, overall, I think... I think that this soundtrack was very beautifully and very well well very well thought out I yeah, think definitely. and and even though it was only 3 days the vet have spent obviously making the bulk of this material I I think excuse me that was really all that was really all that Eddie Vedder needed predominantly yeah. to finesse everything that he wanted to convey because he didn't he didn't perhaps want it to um, be elongated over this very long period of time, become very heavily edited and yeah. very heavily mixed together in a recording studio. He needed it very basic and very raw because he yeah, wanted... I, and I think that style of music is a firm reflection of that sort of quick, eventful, from what, rushing from one thing to the next kind of lifestyle that Alexander Supertramp led in this film and in, in his life. Yeah, definitely. I think, as well, in terms of comparing Edda to... Uh, Edda? Eddie Vedder <laughs> to McCandless. Mm-hmm. It's sort of... Um, what was I going to say? Gosh darn it. Um, 
Okay, you, you carry on talking. I'll. Uh... <laughs> no, it's uh, it's um it's all right. Honestly, I understand. Um, I I think that one one thing especially that I that I take away from this film is what I what I take away from any film is the way it makes me feel after I watched it. What after yeah. I watched it, what what film it leads me lingering with. I came out of Avengers Endgame last year and I was crying my eyes out. I but I yeah definitely. And that's just one isolated example. But I came out of this film, and I've only watched it recently, and I, I didn't quite know what to think of it. I didn't think it was. I didn't think it was bad. Of course not. I thought. I thought it was a very good film. But it, it left me with this sense of, huh, in my, in my stomach over, everything that, McCandless had been through and for his life to end in such a such a tragic way. Tragic way. But, yeah. in a lot of aspects. It was very poetic, and yeah, as I mentioned, he said that he had lived somewhat. You, we, we reckon that he had run away from positions instead of dealing with them, and ultimately he had actually been carrying that grief. And in a lot of respects, he had never really got over it. But then, in other aspects, yeah. even though he passed away in unfortunate circumstances, he he ultimately up to the point where he decided to come home, he was enjoying himself. Yeah, definitely. He was enjoying this new lifestyle that he's had that was very, very liberated and very detached from the world around him and the people who were who were caring for him. And obviously, it was very selfish from his perspective, naturally, because he didn't tell them. And he just sort of made all these decisions for himself and left everyone else worried. And he... And I think it was... I think the film as well, it wasn't just about forgiveness, it was about accepting that he can't yeah. spend the rest of his life governed by the blame that he places on his on his parents because he I think he finally realizes that what his parents did shouldn't actually go on to define the person no, exactly. that he that he grows up to be. And that I think is ultimately what also drove his pursuit into the Alaskan wilderness that McCandless yeah. wanted he wanted to have that sense of freedom and show that he didn't need to be governed by the way that his parents had acted and and and, and the environment that he had been raised in and this sort yeah. of very cathartic soundtrack with 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 a lot of pathos in it a lot of pathos at its center really conveyed these complex mix of emotions that are constantly wrestling around McCandless's subconscious. Where, as we mentioned with Peter Quell, he's sort of in this state of flux throughout the film. And he never really finds, I would never say, true happiness. Even though he enjoys himself when he's walking around, etc., he never finds he never finds true happiness, even if it's with John Rainey. He, he's still always in that state where he's not sure what's going to happen from one thing to the next, and in a way, he enjoys that lifestyle. But I think deep down, excuse me, he always has these these visions in the back of his mind of what what life could look like if he had never run away and if he chose to stay with his oh, parents. Yeah. I think the the two movies overlap a little bit. In mm-hmm. that happiness is only real when it's shared, and if you notice with um, Guardians One, 
he's only extremely happy and content with himself whenever he's with Gamora or mm-hmm. everyone else. And I think it's a very true concept to think about. Into the Wild, it was originally a book, but now it's been made into a movie. It's been released to challenge the, the norms of what everyone thinks and challenge people's perspectives on happiness and mm. family and human interaction. And Eddie Vedder has done a brilliant, absolutely brilliant job of, like I said, encompassing Candace's journey. And what I was going to say before but forgot... Ah, you remembered. He, yes, I did remember. It's fittingly raw. He didn't want it. He didn't want there to be too much production into it, because when music becomes corporatized with overproduced shenanigans, mm, yeah, that sort of takes away from the emotion. And corporatizing the corporatizing the soundtrack to a movie where the main character is nowhere near corporate mm-hmm. is would be out of place so it's fittingly raw, oh yeah it's fittingly acoustic i think that I, I think it works very well i i i definitely agree with that point because i think that if you as you said if you have all these elements that you consistently it's like with it's like let, let's let's strip it back down to something very basic for a moment let's think about pizza and if you think you've got Nice thin crust. You got tomato for the base, bit of cheese, basil, etc. And that that works. That works well enough. And sometimes just a margarita is is all you need. Sometimes just enjoying a margarita and those basic elements of a pizza are just enough. And it's when you start throwing all the shit and the pineapple and the chicken wings and not literal shit. You know what I mean? The the, the chicken wings and the pineapple and. The, you know, the ham, the sausage, etc. And all those toppings are great. And sometimes those toppings are nice, but it's it's it nice to just... It, it, it takes away from the pizza. And I think, and I definitely think that's what you're you're trying to get at here, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And on that note, I think we are coming towards the end of the episode. And as always, there's not much more for me to say other than a massive thank you to Stuart for coming on the podcast today. Thanks for having me. Thanks for having me. Of course, it's been an absolute pleasure and we've discussed a lot of a lot of interesting topics here and I'm sure in a future episode there are many more memorable soundtracks out there that we can discuss because there's a whole plethora of films from so many different decades and so many different generations and each have their own special scores and special soundtracks that we know and love and cherish to this day. Yeah. And just as um just as a summary, are there any final thoughts on Into the Wild soundtrack or the Awesome Mix Volume One you'd like to share with us? I I think we've discussed pretty much everything there is to discuss. I have to. Both I have I have to agree yeah. with you. I have to agree with you. But um, on that note, this is the end of the podcast. So as always, thank you so much for listening. If you have any queries or episode suggestions, feel free to get in touch with me on Instagram at the Cinerealm Podcast. Or alternatively, you can always email me at Podcast at outlook.com. If you are listening on Apple Podcasts, feel free to give me a rating because that really helps me out. So thank you all so much for listening and I will see you for another episode soon. Take care, everyone.